Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host, Patty Brisbane. Today, I'm joined by one of the PBF's 2021 grant recipients, Dr. Shauna Kimfine, to discuss her research on behalf of the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons and Dr. Michael Critchman, chair of the PBF Medical Advisory Board. Hello, everyone. And let's tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Dr. Critchman, we'll start with you. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having us on today to talk about this grant. Uh, I'm Dr. Mike Critchman. I am a sexual medicine gynecologist in Southern California and also the chair of the Medical Advisory Board for the PBF and really excited to be here and be a part of this organization, which really is the premier organization that provides funding for women's sexual health and really moving the needle in terms of classical research that we need to change women's lives and really very excited to be a part of this discussion with Dr. Fine today. Dr. Fine. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, my name is Dr. Shauna Kim Fine. I am coming to you from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I am a female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon, otherwise known as a urogynecologist. Um, and I'm super excited likewise to be here, to be meeting with uh, such generous donors who are wanting to fund, I think, a really important area of research in women's health. All right, well, let's get these questions started because I know it's important. So Dr. Uh, Kempfein, what is the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons? Yeah, so the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons is actually, uh, I guess you could say it's a volunteer organization. It's a professional society um, comprised of gynecologic surgeons who are um, members um, mostly from the United States, but really international um, venues as well. And we're all interested in wanting to support um, gaining more knowledge and improving the science in gynecologic surgical practice around the care of women. I love that because I think that's so important to get so many more questions answered because um, it's gonna, this research is so important. Um, Dr. Kim Fine, what is pelvic reconstructive surgery and how is this study going to impact us? Oh gosh. Okay. Well, pelvic reconstructive surgery um, or female pelvic reconstructive surgery, it is generally uh, a subspecialty with, so it's a subspecialty within gynecologic surgery. Um, it is focused on using surgery, although we do do some just medicine, non-surgery medicine as well, trying to improve the health of women as it surrounds their pelvic floor primarily. So that's talking about the uterus, the vagina, the bladder, the rectum, everything that's down there. Um, and I like to describe it to maybe um, patients as like, I'm the kind of doctor, I don't deliver the babies anymore, but I'm the one that can help you after the babies have come out. Um, because there's a lot of long lasting effects after childbirth. And it's not just women who have had babies that um, struggle with these issues. There are many women who have never had babies or never been pregnant, but still have problems with their pelvic floor. Okay. Uh, Dr. Critchman, how common is sexual dysfunction after pelvic floor uh, reconstructive surgery? Well, Patty, as Dr. Uh, Kim Thine mentioned, you know, after 
uh, childbirth, there's very often some uh, issues in terms of pelvic floor relaxation, there may be prolapse, there may be even urogynecological issues where people are having problems, whether it is with urination or holding their urine, or even with prolapse that they feel like the organs are falling out. So, you know, it is very, very common. And I think the, the big issue that I see is people get really lulled into thinking that this is a natural process of aging, that that women just have to kind of grin and bear it, and that this is just normal, that the organs should be falling out, or that you should be leaking urine, or experiencing pain and discomfort. Um, so again, I think this is more common than we even know, because women are not talking about it, there's no formal discussions, and people are really very often discounting these symptoms. So, you know, there's part and parcel with the clinicians not even recognizing that some of these problems may be a problem for women and really very impactful in their overall quality of life. So very diverse problems, very common and under addressed and underdiagnosed as well. Interesting. Dr. Kim Fine, for patients undergoing pelvic reconstructive surgery, what is your advice to them on returning to sexual activity? So this is a great question you're asking, Patty, and this is really the root of why um, I kind of came up with this research question. Um, I would say that if you had asked me this question about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when I was first starting in practice, it was pretty my answer would have been different, we'll just say. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have said much. I probably would have said, well, you can go back to sex after six weeks. That's kind of all I was kind of taught to you know, talk to people about and would really only go into it if someone maybe asked another follow-up question. But as I practiced you know, in my own practice and teaching fellows and residents and medical students, and maybe it's, you know, the, it's a reflection of society changing, but more women are feeling more comfortable asking the follow-up questions. So then that's changed my own practice. And so now when I talk to um, women after surgery, you know, I go into a little bit more detail. I talk to them about, you know, how it might feel when they first go back to it. You know, six weeks, six to eight weeks is a general timeline. No one says you have to be ready at six weeks. And I talk to them about how there's a lot of variation. We talk about possible uh, complications that can happen and what they could mean and when they should come back or what, what is within the realm of, oh, this is common, but these are things we can do to address it. We talk about lubrication. We talk about vaginal estrogen. And sometimes I talk about changing positions. These are all like my whole counseling spiel has changed a lot. And um, in talking with colleagues, I think I've recognized that there's a lot of variability in what um, surgeons are talking to their patients about, if at all. So that's one of the aims of our study actually is kind of uh, the beginning part of our study is actually exploring what do surgeons actually do? Like right now, what are people doing out there in the world? I know what I do. I know what a couple of my colleagues do, but is that what everyone does? I don't know. I, I, I think that's really interesting because I think that many probably do think like you did in the past and that is just let's get them through this surgery and let's just fall off you know stay in your lane type of thing and I think that 
looking at the study, I could see where it's so important to have these this information to all the doctors out there. And because if you're asking your doctor about, you know, returning back to sexual activity, and they don't have the answer for this, what good is the surgery? You know, I, 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 as a as a patient, I would want to understand everything. And so I really found this study very interesting, because I think it's going to help many doctors out there to be able to answer these questions. Um, how are these patients selected for the study? And why is this research so important? So um, the patients that we're going to be recruiting for the study will be everyone, anyone that's really been consented or and is eligible for a pel female pelvic reconstructive surgery for incontinence or prolapse. So that could be, you know, a hysterectomy with a suspension, or it could be, a you know, someone's already had a hysterectomy, but they need a mesh procedure to lift everything up. Or maybe they've got problems with stress incontinence and need a procedure for that. So these are all women who are already undergoing surgery. Um, that's their general inclusion criteria. Things that we uh, were wanting to kind of keep it sort of a clean sample just to help with data analysis were we were going to try and not include people who already have pre-existing chronic pelvic pain. And the reason is just um, it would just kind of cloud the final results of our of the study. So the study is really quite simple. It's really just randomizing women um, to either just undergo what they normally undergo in terms of what doctors tell them about sex after surgery, which could be as simple as, okay, everything looks healed, you're good to go. Or could be, uh, they could be randomized to this standardized tool, which we have designed and tested and are formalizing, which is gonna include a number of um, specific points, um, addressing all the areas that other patients have indicated as important. One of the things that seem very important about your project is the number of collaborators involved. How many clinical sites and subjects do you anticipate? So yes, this is definitely a big undertaking. And I will say that um, the reason we opened it up to such a large number is because I really wanted to be collaborative. I really wanted a lot of buy-in from across the entire you know, continent, really. Um, so I, we have right now about 12 sites total across Canada and the US, most of the US, I'm the only Canadian site. But um, I'm really excited to have so many partners. People, and this tells me that there's a lot of people that are passionate about wanting to improve this area of women's healthcare. Um, and the total number, um, I think it's like 170, but then you have to account for people that might drop out. So we have enough that will meet the statistical power of 80%. Um, so it's going to be a big undertaking, but hopefully everything goes smoothly. It'll go well. Um, is your study still taking participants? Absolutely, yes. So we're um, still in the, almost at the end of contract negotiation with all of these multiple sites. So this is one of the challenges of having so many sites. Then you have 14 or different legal departments that want their input and signing the contracts and whatnot. So a lot of that is going to be a challenge, but we're, we're getting through it. And many thanks to the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons and their team for helping us negotiate and navigate these waters. Um, we also, sorry, I have another top thing on the top tip of my tongue. Um, we talked about the contract. Oh, yes. 
And now that we're at the nearing the end of all of that and um, getting our uh, IRB submissions, the research ethics boards and all of the different institutions through, that also takes a bit of time as well. We'll begin to start recruiting. Um, so we're not even anywhere, uh, I guess, at that point where we're recruiting. Um, and it should also be noted that one of the challenges in um, applying for this and being awarded this in this time of COVID is that we've had these variable shutdowns uh, of operating room privileges um, in different sites, just depending on where you are. And so like my own site, we were totally shut down for two months and now we're slowly starting. So that will affect um, the study recruitment as well. Awesome. Dr. Critchman. I know you must be excited to hear about this potential to create a universal counseling tool for women recovering from pelvic reconstructive surgery. How will this affect the future of care? Well, Patty, you know, as a therapist, I think it's really important to have these interventions, you know, and in terms of standardizing, I think it's really helpful for the, you know, the lay clinician who may not be a therapist, who may not be aware of the, you know, the process by which women are experiencing their different symptoms. So to me, this is kind of the end chapter. So we've standardized history and physical. We do our best to standardize the surgical intervention, like down to surgery, down to suture technique, down to laparoscopic versus open versus robotic, to really know the benefits, the risks, and the alternatives of every phase of a disease process. And this is really the, you know, for me, the final chapter, which is really about the quality of life and thereafter. And you mentioned that point, you know, quite eloquently. What's the point of doing, going through, you know, three quarters of the book if you don't know how it's going to end, right? It's kind of very frustrating for the participant, for the woman herself who is going through everything from the pre-op labs to the history, to the physical, to the surgery itself, to recovery. And then the, you know, probably one of the most important aspects is how is this going to impact her overall quality of life? So for me, this is really a nice ending to a, a very comprehensive approach to the management of women who have pelvic floor disorder. So, you know, um, I think this is going to really change the landscape. It's really going to be added to the comprehensive intake form that we have, you know, so we have basic intake forms of history, physical consent, procedures, what have you. And this will really impact the overall care that a woman is getting in totality, like really addressing quality of life and sexual health concerns after these really, you know, extensive procedures and really improving quality of life. So um, I'm really excited about the uh, results. I'm really excited about this uh, study, the study design, you know, a lot of different sites all over the country, uh, including Canada as well, looking at a diverse group of women and what their needs are and how we can better serve them after surgical procedures. So uh, very excited to hear these results as they become available. Yeah, I, yeah, as you said, it's so important to have the surgery done because yeah, you, your body needs it. But everybody going through surgery wants to know that there is gonna be a quality life afterwards. And that's why it's so important to have this information. Um, Dr. Kim Fine, one of the principles of the foundation is to ensure that 
we support research that uh, closes the gender gap and addresses racial disparities. Can you explain how your study addresses this? Sure. So I think um, in terms of gender gap, we're talking about care for women versus care for men. Um, you know, maybe someone will argue with me, but I think there's been a whole lot of research and therapeutics and, um, you know, investigation done into improving the sexual health of men. And there's more to be done, but there's lots of drugs available, lots of, you know, there's lots available for our uh, male counterparts, but I really feel that um, for women, for females, it's really been lacking. And I think it's wonderful that we're now in an age where there is more attention and thank goodness with generous donors like your, your group, we're able to work on this more. And um, so I, just this body of work really just in the female population, I think is going to try and address that gender gap. It's also gonna be addressing the gender gap by normalizing talking about it. Um, so that's part of our study in like, you know, big picture goals is that we're gonna make it okay for women to discuss this with their surgeon, whether the surgeon is male or female, whether the surgeon is older or younger. You know, I just wanna know that we make it like a standard of care that women can talk to their doctor. So that is, um, I think, a big part of gender gap. And um, another part of the um, increasing diversity um, is that we have really tried in our sub aims as part of our research study to try um, and address that there are inequities in healthcare delivery um, in different racialized groups in the United States, specifically um, among Spanish speaking um, women. And so we have made an effort to try and uh, we're going to translate and back translate and test this standardized tool into Spanish language. And we have recruited two Spanish speaking expert um, uh, surgeons who are familiar with the area and they'll be able to um, help with the translation and back translation. I'm, I've got commitment from some uh, three partner sites who have said that they will do their best to um, recruit um, Spanish speaking patients, whether they're bilingual or not, um, to give us feedback on the tool as well. So, you know, if we can get this done, then this is an extra tool to help, you know, not just English speaking uh, females who need the service. Amazing. Amazing. That's great. Uh, okay, Dr. Kim Fine, I have one last question for you. And that is, why is sexual health research so important to you? So sexual health research is important to me, quite simply, because my patients are important to me. And so what I'm trying to say is that sexual health is part of a whole my, my whole view of a patient of her, okay? Um, and ignoring that is really very one-dimensional. So pretending it doesn't exist because I'm uncomfortable talking about it, that's not being a good doctor. That's why I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about it because, um, like I said, the more and more I practice, the more and more I realize that it's important to women. <laughs> like my patients want to know. And, and, and when you scratch the surface a little bit, then the floodgates open and they really want to share and they want to talk about it. So this is just a great burgeoning, exciting area of research. And um, thank you again for all of your support. And thank you. Um, right now, I wanna thank my, my guest, uh, Dr. Shauna Kim Fine and Dr. Michael Critchman for a great conversation. For more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health and our six focuses, visit the pattybrisbanefoundation.org. Remember, 
Sex care is self-care and sexual health matters. Thank you.